Lord, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the opportunity. Uh, Lord, um, no one is sufficient to preach your word perfectly. Um, and we realize this, and we just pray, God, that you would, um, your word would go forth and that people's lives would be impacted because of the power of your word and um, you working in that. So that is our uh, desire today, that you'd be glorified. And I pray this in your name. Amen. So 1446 BC, Exodus 32, um, same same time period. We see Moses on top of the mountain, interceding for the people of Israel. Mount Sinai is the mountain he's on top of. Um, he intercedes for the people, and the Lord relents because the Lord is faithful and the Lord is gracious. Uh, Moses continues to intercede and goes down that mountain, seething in anger, and throws throws the tablets of the Ten Commandments to the ground and breaks them. Why is he so mad? What does he see? He sees exactly what the Lord told him he would see. He sees the people of Israel whoring after another God, serving another God. Um, Exodus 32, we know that to be the golden calf. They're giving this golden calf that Aaron made credit for bringing them out of Israel, giving that golden calf um, credit that only Yahweh deserves. It's uh, idolatry in the grossest sense. And Moses is obviously upset with this and grinds up that calf, makes it into a fine powder, scatters it on the water, and forces them to drink it. He then goes to Aaron, who no doubt is embarrassed at this point, and rebukes him. And all Aaron can say is, well, I threw it in the fire and out came this calf. (laughs) Yeah, it's an awful excuse. (laughs) It doesn't help at all. But yeah, Aaron's embarrassed. And after that, uh, according to the word of Moses, the Levites carry out judgment on the people and kill 3,000 people immediately. No judgment, no hearing, no trial, just immediate judgment. I said no judgment, that's not what I meant. No, no hearing, no trial, immediate judgment, 3,000 dead. Moses then intercedes again for the people, and it says he makes atonement for them. And it's at that point that the, the anger of the Lord is turned away is turned away from the people of Israel. And we have this, this same people um, not even a year later, probably months later, um, not learning very much, complaining to the Lord, uh, not being content with where the Lord has them. Like I said, less than a year later, and the Lord's anger is kindled once again um, towards the Israelites. Moses intercedes, the Lord relents because he's faithful, However, there's consequences this time, uh, namely 40 years of wilderness wandering. From this point on, uh, the Lord issues 40 years, basically for this generation to die off. So this generation had hopes of going into the promised land. They're gone. They're crushed. There's no hopes of going into the promised land. So they get to literally walk around the desert of Moab until they die for 40 years. So let's zoom forward from that point 39 years. At the very tail end of that 40 year wondering, we have the newer generation at this point uh, waiting for the old guys to die off. They're like, okay, it's probably time for you to go. Getting a little old and it's year 39 of 40. We're ready to enter the promised land. We're poised to enter the promised land. And this younger generation, they've seen um, literally daily people dying off from that old generation as a constant reminder 
of their sin, of Israel's sin. They've seen that for 39 years. They've had 39 years to think about it, and they've had 39 years um, to look forward to going into the promised land. And they have a bright future ahead of them. They know that the promised land is going to be good, and we can be excited for Israel. We're excited for what the Lord has for them and what the Lord has promised for them. And furthermore, around the same time, we, we see actually in Numbers 22, you can actually turn there if you want to. Um, Numbers 22 through 24, kind of an interesting section here, but again, it's in, in this 39th year of 40 wilderness wanderings um, that we find an interaction between uh, Balak, who is the Moabite king, and Balaam, who is Balak's chosen seer or prophet, if you will. Basically, Balak is shaking in his boots. He's seen Israel, he knows what they do. He's seen their domination, and he needs help. And he says, Balaam, I need you to curse them. Simple as that, I need you to curse them. And after some talking back and forth, the two shake hands, and they're off. Balaam agrees to um, curse Israel. However, Balaam says to Balak, I'm not going to speak against what the Lord tells me to speak. And for whatever reason, Balak is okay with this, so they go ahead. And in verse or Numbers 23, we see... Balaam's first oracle. Verse 8 says, How can I curse whom God has not cursed? How can I denounce whom the Lord has not denounced? Verse 10, Who can count the dust of Jacob or number the fourth part of Israel? So his first oracle, he blesses Israel. He doesn't curse them, he blesses them and says they are like dust. Balak, obviously not not extremely thrilled with this first oracle, but is willing to give him another chance. So we see Balaam's second oracle, uh, Numbers 23, verses 18 through 24, and I'll just read a few verses out of that. Uh, Verse 20 says, Behold, I receive a command to bless. He has blessed, and I cannot revoke it. He has not beheld misfortune in Jacob, nor has he seen trouble in Israel. The Lord their God is with them, and the shout of the king is among them. God brings them out of Egypt. Behold a people, verse 24, as a lioness it rises up, and as a lion it lifts itself. It does not lie down until it has devoured the prey and drunk the blood of the slain. So Balak, yeah, is not not comfortable. He's getting probably worse at this point. He knows that Israel is a powerful nation, and Balaam is uh, doing a poor job of comforting him and is indeed blessing Israel. Uh, Quite the opposite. However, Balaam, or Balak wants to give him one more chance, and so he does, and he gets, gets what he asks for in chapter 24. Um, Balaam says in verse, verse 5, How lovely are your tents, O Jacob, your encamp- encampments, O Israel, like palm groves that stretch afar, like gardens beside the river, like aloes that the Lord has planted, like cedar trees beside the waters. Again, verse 8, God brings him out of Egypt. Uh, further in verse 8, he shall eat up the nations, his adversaries, and shall break their bones in pieces and pierce them through with his arrows. Verse 9, he crouched. He lay down like a lion and like a lioness who will rouse him. Blessed are those who bless you and cursed are those who curse you. So basically saying, Balak, you're cursed because you wanted to curse them. And Balak's angry at this point. He's like, I've, I've called you to curse them. And first, you haven't 
you haven't just not cursed them, you've blessed them three times. Three separate times you have cursed, um, or three separate times you have blessed Israel rather than cursed them. And it doesn't stop there. Ba- uh, Balaam kind of takes the ball in his own court at this point. And uh, to add insult to injury, he says to Balak, Hey, come follow me, and I'll show you what these people are going to do to you in the latter days. And we see that uh, chapter 24, uh, verse 15, it says, And he took up his discourse. Um, verse 17, A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel, and it shall crush the forehead of Moab. Verse 19, and one from Jacob shall exercise dominion and destroy the survivors of the city. Verse 23, alas, who shall live when God does this? So yeah, the theme, the theme is obvious. Uh, Balak is, again, like I said, struggling. He's, he knows his doom is, is coming at this point. He's probably like, well, jeepers, Balaam, what the heck, man? <laughs> that, that didn't help at all. I'm not going to be recommending you to anybody um, in the future. But basically the point of this is Israel is put on a pedestal. Their future is sure. There's a scepter that's going to come out of Jacob, and it's going to rule and dominate the nations, crush the forehead, eat them. He uses the term lion and lioness, rise up and pounce on them. It just speaks of Israel's dominance and their, their future glory. And keeping in mind that it's year 39 of 40 of wilderness wanderings. So not only do we have all these great um, predictions and prophecies of Israel's future, but they are literally miles away from the Jordan River, crossing into Canaan, taking that promised land. So their future is bright, and we are excited for that future. So with that, let's turn to Numbers 25 if you're uh, not there already. And let's keep in mind uh, just what we've been talking about as we read the first three verses. Numbers 25, verse 1. While Israel lived in Shittim, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. These invited the people to sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel yoked himself to Baal of Peor, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against them. So if that's not a drop, a flop, a fail, I don't know what you want to call it. I don't know what is. It's a very, very good example of biblical irony. You know, Israel just being built up, built up, built up, they fail. Just utterly and blatant failure at this point. Um... Yeah, they whore with the daughters of Moab. Shittim is, um, I mentioned this maybe earlier, but northeast of the Dead Sea. So like I said, close, close to the Jordan River, kind of on their way to the Jordan River. They're close to entering, and they fail. Uh, verse 2, they sacrifice, they ate, they bowed down to their gods, and they yoke themselves. They yoke themselves to Baal of Peor. And kind of the picture we get here is, um, of two oxen being separate, maybe in a pen or a field, um, eating grass, doing whatever oxen do on a normal day, and then they're brought together for one specific task. They're yoked together um, under one yoke for a specific task. And it's the same, same picture we get um, with Israel and Baal. Separate, um, God's people, foreign God, powerless God, now yoked together for one task, going for the same, same goal at this point. Um, so yeah, we see Israel's sin there. 
And it's a flashback. It's a flashback to Exodus 32 and the golden calf incident. Um, we see that idolatry that is coming through there. So verses 3 through 5, um, the later latter half of uh, 3, says, And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. Obviously. You know, obviously the Lord's anger is kindled at this point. And the Lord um, takes immediate action, and we see that in verse 4. It says, And the Lord said to Moses, Take all the chiefs of the people and hang them in the sun before the Lord, that the fierce anger of the Lord may turn away from Israel. Basically he's saying, do this to make atonement. Turn my wrath from the people. Make atonement for the people. And the word hang here we see, it says hang them um, in the sun is, is pretty brutal. It's kind of in its semantic range. It's death by exposure, inhalation. Basically a public display. These people are going to be skewered, basically. And it's going to be really obvious that what they did has consequences. It's going to be clear to everyone who sees it. And that would be atonement. We, it seems to imply that had Moses done that, um, the Lord's anger would have been turned away. But we read in verse 5 what Moses actually did. Yeah, verse 5. And Moses said to the judges of Israel, Each of you kill those, those of his men who have yoked themselves to Baal of Peor. So it seems, and some commentaries allude to this as well, that Moses is fairly imprecise or incomplete in carrying out what the Lord, uh, the Lord says to him. The Lord tells him to hang the chiefs of the people. You know, I mentioned how brutal that was. And Moses uh, commands the people to kill those who have yoked themselves to Baal of Peor. And it doesn't seem like this is exactly what the Lord had in mind, especially given that the plague doesn't stop at this point. The plague is still there, as we'll read on. It's not finished yet. It'll finish later, but not yet. So the, the sin is still going on. It's not stopped. Moses' imprecision didn't help the matter. And to make matters worse, we have two fairly bold individuals who come on the scene. Um, we learn later in the chapter their names are Cosby and Zimri. Uh, verse 6, we read about them. And behold, one of the people of Israel came and brought a Midianite woman to his family in the sight of Moses and in the sight of the whole congregation of the people of Israel while they were weeping in the entrance of the tent of meeting. So Zimri, he's the man from Israel, and Cosby is the Midianite woman whom he brings into his tent. Uh, blatantly, in front of the whole congregation, a weeping congregation, pretty much giving the middle finger to everybody, go and sin, sin before the congregation. And it's interesting, their, their name, Zimri, um, comes from a root, the root word in Hebrew meaning um, sacred or set apart. Cosby, which is that Midianite woman, um, that name comes from the root word meaning adversary or to show hostility. So it's, it's kind of a microcosm, to use um, the word Danny Johnson always uses, microcosm of what, um, what is happening as a whole in Israel. We have uh, Zimri, or sacred, set apart, an Israelite, and Cosby, on this hand, um, adversary, hostility, joined together, yoked together, as we read in verse 3, yoked together for one task. So it's, it's heinous and it's gruesome on an individual level, but it also represents um, Israel's sin as a whole. 
So yeah, they do this in the midst of the people. Um, an illustration I use would be like, I was kind of hoping, oh, Aaron is in here. A Walmart um, employee walking out the store, walking out the front doors. He's got the 50-inch Vizio in his hands. He sees his boss and just kind of gives him the nod and the bird at the same time. <laughs> no shame, not at all. That's, that's what we kind of get in here with Zimri and Cosby uh, times, times a couple hundred. It's, it's obviously way more intense because they're sinning against the Lord blatantly and obviously. And no one's doing anything about it at this point. Uh, but we read in verse 7. Phineas, when Phineas, the son of Eleazar, son of Aaron the priest, saw it, he rose and left the congregation and took a spear in his hand and went after the man of Israel into the chamber and pierced both of them. The man of Israel and the woman through her belly. Thus, the plague of the people of Israel was stopped. This action stops the plague. Phineas, in his zeal, takes action and stops the plague. Um, it says later that he was jealous with the Lord's jealousy. He was impassioned with the very passion of Yahweh. That's what drove him to stop the plague. That's what drove him to drive that spear uh, through the couple, likely in the very act of sin. No trial, no hearing, immediate judgment. Again, a flashback to Exodus 32 and the judgment the Levites carried out. We saw in Exodus 32, worship of the calf, idolatry, judgment without trial. It's the same thing here. Worship of Baal at Peor, and now judgment without trial. Uh, Phineas takes immediate action because the zeal of Yahweh is driving him. There's still consequences, though. 24,000 are dead, um, as it says in verse 9. Nevertheless, those who died by the plague were 24,000. The sin sin of Israel costs them dearly. That's, that's pretty obvious. 24,000 dead um, in the midst of the past 39 years of waiting for a, or a uh, generation to die off. They are very familiar with death at this point. And I wonder, I wonder what the scene was like um, at the camp at this point. Probably a little awkward, probably pretty silent. 24,000 dead. Um, Zimri and Cosby laying in their tent with a spear driven through their back. People probably questioning Phineas's motives, questioning if that was the right thing to do, but that is answered very quickly for us um, in verse 10. Verse 10, And the Lord said to Moses, Phineas the son of Eleazar, son of Aaron the priest, has turned back my wrath from the people of Israel, and that he was jealous with my jealousy, among them, so that I did not consume the people of Israel in my jealousy. Therefore say, Behold, I give him a covenant of peace, and it shall be to him and to his descendants after him, the covenant of perpetual priesthood, because he was jealous for his God and made atonement for the people of Israel. Phineas was honored for, for what he did. Again, a flashback to Exodus 32. The Levites are ordained at that point. And Phineas is honored here. It has a lot of, lot of parallels with that, with that story. So we see that atonement for sin was needed in this story. And we see that Moses didn't do a good job of that. It would seem that his imprecision and maybe his um, lack of confidence, his fear, drove him to make a partial decision, not an imprecise decision. But Phineas, with the, with the zeal of Yahweh, makes atonement for the people. 
And we see both in Exodus 32 and in this story, um, as well as throughout the Bible, especially in the Old Testament, major themes. Um, God is faithful, people are sinful, and specifically in these two stories, atonement for sin is needed. Sin must be atoned for. There's no, there's no getting around that. If sin's not atoned for, the righteous wrath of God remains. Um, and we see that uh, in verse tw- or chapter 25, verse 11. It says, I've turned back my wrath from the people of Israel, implying that had Phineas not done that, the wrath would have still been there. Phineas turned back God's wrath with his actions. Phineas took extreme measures, and they show how sin must be atoned for. And that is brutally and to the death every time. So from there, the text goes on to uh, mention the names of the sinners, Zimri and Cosby. We talked about that already. And also the decree of um, Midian's destruction or Midian's harassment. Basically the people who caused Israel to fall to sin. But for application's sake, um, Israel as a group is left now hopefully ashamed, hopefully repentant, still waiting to enter the promised land, still poised to enter. Luckily, the Lord is faithful. The Lord's still faithful to them despite their actions. And there's much to learn about this event for us. Um, A lot to learn. Let's turn to 1 Corinthians 10, uh, 1 through 14. Let's pick it up in verse 5. 1 Corinthians 10, 5. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place. The events of Numbers 25 took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of, them, some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction, on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. We don't have to repeat the same mistakes that Israel did in the wilderness there. And we see that sin is deceitful. Sin is... um, Stealthy. Matthew Henry kind of pointed this out to me uh, in his commentary that had uh, Moab, had Balak and the, the Moabites drawn battle lines against Israel, they likely would have drawn battle lines on the opposite side and fought valiantly against them. But Balak, uh, that, or Balaam, the prophet we read about, uh, we learn in Numbers 31 and actually Revelation 2 speaks of him as well likely knew that that was not the tactic that was going to work for, for the enemies. 
He knew of Israel's power, and he knew more so of Yahweh, their God, whom, whose words he was speaking and whose power he knew of. He encouraged instead Balak and the women of that area to be a stumbling block to Israel, to defeat them via sin. Israel wasn't ready for it. Pretty obviously wasn't ready for it. Let us be ready for it. Sin is not going to be just a big wall and you can look on your watch and say, okay, half an hour from now I'm going to be tempted and you be ready now. It's not going to happen that way. It's in the moment and we need to be ready for it and know that sin's attack is stealthy and sin's attack is deceitful. So being ready for that is key. And we know that people have had these struggles before. That's the, that's the gist of 1 Corinthians 10, 12 through uh, 13. It's not uncommon what we're going through. So be ready be ready for sin's attack. Learn from their example and know the consequences of sin. 23,000, 24,000, just kind of a generalization, died that day. In a single day, the Lord hates sin. And it's pretty, pretty clear. Learn also from the positive example we see here, though. Phineas is, is kind of the shining star in this, this story. Phineas was faithful. Um, his Yahweh-driven zeal um, is what drove him to make atonement for the people of Israel. It stopped the sin. It turned back God's wrath that um, without his actions would have remained, rightfully so, would have remained on the people. And that is an awesome truth, and it's, it should leave each one of us here, just the word atonement, should leave each one of us here uh, thinking back 2,000 years ago. When a man burned with the Lord's zeal in a similar way that Phineas did, was impassioned with uh, Yahweh's passion, just as Phineas was, um, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. Consider this man. Uh, we know it's Jesus Christ. He endured for sinners' hostility so that we may not grow faint-hearted. He made atonement. He took God's wrath that was rightfully on us and turned it away. With that, let's turn to Romans 5. Romans 5, 6 through 11. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were uh, enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now have received reconciliation. Verse 9, Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Christ's atonement saves us from the wrath of God. And it's not, that's one side of it. He saves us from the wrath of God. And now we enter into communion with him. Um, Psalm 16 says that that joy, that pleasure will be forevermore, never ceasing. I'm um, a fullness of joy. And that's, that's why we're 
That's why we're joyful people. That's what we long for. And that's why we can rejoice in the fact that Christ made atonement. We know that sin must be atoned for. And we know that we have that atonement in one man, and that's Jesus Christ. So with that, let's pray. Father, we thank you that you did make atonement, that your wrath is no longer on us um, if we are in Jesus Christ. The wrath that rightfully should be on us, that we should bear, is not because of the cross. So Lord, may that um, infiltrate our lives and may it just be overwhelmingly obvious to the people around us that we are, we are joyful because you have made atonement for us. And Lord, the wrath of God is removed and we have been transferred into the kingdom of light. Lord, into Lord, what will one day be fullness and unending joy, perfect joy without sin. So Lord, we long for that day and may we share this truth and may it be a part of our lives. Lord, we love you and we thank you for your work. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.